in our study, Stand Firm in Grace. And originally, this would have been a letter, okay, so it wasn't broken apart by chapters and, and verses and so forth. This would have been a letter, and it continues on from last week. Maybe some of you remember from being a child or from working with children, have you ever played the game, Would You Rather? I used to do this as a youth pastor, just on long, miserable trips, you know, would you rather, you know, would you rather have your toenails ripped out or your, you know, whatever, something. And like, no, neither one of those. All right, so I have some would you rather questions, all right, which is better? Um, they're they're going to come up. Would you rather be broke or wealthy? Okay, wealthy. Like, is this wrong? Is it a trick question right here? All right. I mean, would you rather have, okay, next one. Would you rather be captive or free? Okay, free. It's, it's greater. It's better. We got the little math sign in there. Would you rather be foolish or wise. Now, how many wives just elbowed their husbands, right? They're like, come on, he's preaching to you now, right? All right, uh, which is greater, to be guilty or justified? Right, set free, right? That's good. Uh, would you rather be a slave or a son? Which is greater? Be a son, okay? Would you rather be owned or the owner? The owner, that's better. It's greater. Would you rather have Velcro or shoestrings? I knew somebody would say Velcro. It's in both services now. I'm like, Velcro is awesome, and it needs to come back into style because it's the answer to all our problems. Jesus and Velcro, that's all we need. All right? But at some point, it's good for parents to actually sit down and teach their kid how to tie their shoes. All right, here's the next one. Flip phone or smartphone? Yeah. yeah, we got a little, we got a little chanting back and forth here, all right? Same as in the first service. Now, some of these are subjective, okay? Typewriter or computer? Did anybody say typewriter? You remember learning? My kids are like, I don't even know what a typewriter is. I, I used to have the one that would, like, the fingers would go up, and if you push two at the same time, they get stuck, and you'd have to stop, and I, I would type letters that would take for hours and ever to ever get that done. Would you rather... Be immature or mature, which is greater? And all the immature people out there like, what? There's a problem with that? I love being immature. And it says something about you. Now, understand this. Last week's sermon, Paul went through a magnificent legal argument that at the end of the day, remember when we read it last Sunday, it was like, whoa, that's a load. At the end of the day, this magnificent argument, he ended it up with, so how many want to go back and have to have a babysitter watch you? And no one would say, no, I don't want that. I, I enjoy having freedom. I enjoy having responsibility. I enjoy having privileges. I remember when I first got my license, after all that driver's training, after everything I went through, and the first time I get in the car and I can drive wherever I want to go, I'm like, it's, I have nobody in the car with me. I can turn the radio on to whatever Christian station I want to turn it on to. I can drive wherever my money will take me, which was maybe like a mile. And I was just like, I'm free to go really nowhere. But I just felt that sense of freedom. Paul, if you go back one slide for me, Paul is doing something in this section today. He's continuing to gather this in. And what he's saying is the Judaizers, the, the legalists, the people who have all the clipboards, all the rules, all the, you need to keep my standards, and I think this, and I think the other, he's, he's, he's putting them over here. He's saying they're immature. 
They are like children. They have to be told when to get up, when to go to bed. They have to be told everything. They're immature. And he's helping the Galatians to understand, do you really want to leave off of being mature in Christ and go be drugged back into immaturity again? You want to go back into slavery? Why? Why would you ever want that? He loves the Galatians. So he's, he's writing and he continues laying this case out theologically. And so when we get to chapter four, it's really a continuation from where it, we left off last week. Chapter four, verse one, he says, I mean that the heir, okay, so he's picking up on this theme again, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave. Though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's ask God for his help. Father, as we unpack these seven verses this morning, I pray that you will do again in this service what you have done already once today, and that you will soften hearts, that you will encourage those who are brokenhearted, you will bind up those who are discouraged and down, and in all things magnify Jesus. Lord, use me. Use me in a powerful way by your spirit this morning to just tell the old story the story of Christ coming to earth, taking our place, taking our shame, dying on a Roman cross, and rising to live forever and offering life in his name to everyone who calls upon you. Thank you for this gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. When you're trying to teach concepts... When you're trying to teach concepts, and this is what Paul is doing, he's, he's working theologically through these issues with the Galatians. It's not always easy to teach concepts. Now, this week, I had a project going on at our house, and it had me in a crawl space, and it had one of my unnamed daughters in the room above me. Simple project, and it needed to be a drill. I was down below, we're trying to get the cables, we're trying to rework the cables. Real, real simple, sort of. Except it wasn't, I didn't drill a big enough hole. So I'm underneath, I'm in the crawl space that's about this big, and I'm shouting the instructions through the floor, here's how you work the drill, and right about that time the drill bit fell out of the drill. Now this daughter had no concept of ever working with the drill before, so I could, I, she, it didn't, you know, forward, backward, the chuck, all of that meant nothing. So trying to explain this from underneath, we pretty much got nowhere, pulled the wire through the floor, came up. But once the hands are on the drill, it wasn't a hard illustration. It was like, well, it's this and that, and it makes the thing in the side. And then, oh, okay. Hopefully, Dad, you can do that forever. I don't really care. Can I go now? <laughs> that was kind of the end of it. And when we're dealing with 
children. There's certain things that are just like, I like the flip phone. I don't want anything additional. It does what I need it to do. I really don't want to be, I don't need all that information. There are certain people that this is what I want. This is where I stay. But Paul is saying, Galatians, you can't stay there in immaturity. You have to come out with me all the way into freedom or you will be hoodwinked. You will be mistaken and misled by people who come in and say, yes, but there's more. You have to observe the Sabbath. You need to abstain from these certain foods. Did you know this? Did you know that? And you're like, I, can't, I didn't see that in the Bible anywhere. And they're like, oh, we can show you. So it's serious. Now, I have a, I have a baseball bat here, you know, softball bat. And I just want you to just, to, just work with me for a moment. If I was to take this bat into a classroom, let's talk kindergartners, and they've never seen people playing baseball before, okay? So they have to just wipe that out of their minds. You go into the kindergarten classroom, and I'm sitting down, and I'm saying, young people, listen to me, this is a bat. This bat is amazing. With this bat, it's got stuff wrapped on it. It'll make your hands really hold tightly to it. Thicker at this end. Everybody can see it's thicker at this end than this end. Here, there's a little stopper, and you know, keeps your hands from sliding off the bat. And with this bat, you can hit a ball, and you can run. How many kids do you think are going to be like, wow, that was amazing. Mom and dad, Christmas list, top of the line, I need a bat. None of them. They're like, who booked, whose dad is this? How did he get time in this classroom? Boo, right? It doesn't make any sense. There's not a concept. There's not a, a story behind this. Meanwhile, when kids see other kids playing in, the, in their neighborhood and they see what's going on, they see them hit a ball and they, they run and, and then they see on TV or perhaps their parents take them to Comerica Park and they actually see the field or they get to go on the field and they see the major leagues, then suddenly... There's this excitement that happens in them and they develop this passion for the game. Like my little neighbor that used to be outside every day, no matter the weather, and his dad bought him a backstop and he was swinging every day, every day. Some of you have kids like that or you were a kid like that. And you were thinking, this is it. I love this game. Something happens in you and other people are like, not for me. It's like watching paint dry. It's boring. I don't want to, you know, I have nothing to do with that. Okay, what makes the difference? Now, when we think about this, what changes it is the story. If I was to say, well, this bat, and then the next slide, something interesting happened in the World Series this year. It was game six. The Houston Astros, Alex Bregman, he crushed a homer early in the game. And he did something that if you know baseball, he broke etiquette. Okay, they have all these things that I, I'm really not part of that world. I didn't grow up playing baseball. My dad grew up in Montana and his friends were deer and bear. So baseball was not high on the wise family list of getting involved in little leagues. He carried the bat all the way down and he went past first base and he handed it off, which is basically a thumb in your nose at the other team. It's kind of like thumping your chest. It's, it's, it's kind of a disrespect to the game. It's kind of outside the, the lines of etiquette. But the game wasn't over yet. In a later inning from the Nationals, then we have Juan Soto, and he crushes his own homer, and it changes the game. They go on to win game six. They go on to win game seven. And it leaves Alex saying, I'm really sorry I did that. Because that moment that I took to kind of boast 
it ended coming back because I couldn't cash the check on the series. So it was a good moment, but the moment went to Soto remembering what Alex had done, and he did his own bat flip and toss to the first base coach saying, I remember what you did. Now, both these guys, there's all kinds of fodder out there back and forth. That was a good, he could have done it, shouldn't have done it. All of these different things. The point is that there will be people watching and they will see these kind of things. And this, if I was trying to explain this in a classroom that has no concept of the game would be meaningless to them. And there are people that will come and they will hear messages and they're not quite putting it together. It's like it doesn't make sense. And you talk about the love of God and you talk about justification and you talk about adoption and you talk about redemption and it doesn't really fire me up. It really doesn't move me because maybe you don't understand the story. Maybe you don't understand the full message of the gospel so that the nuances and the beauty and what God has done, and we're going to see this unfold in this message today of what Paul does with these Galatians and how he walks them through this. He wants them to reject legalism. He wants them to be able to identify people who come in with their, their laws and their rules and, and their way, and they sneak it right up there to level of salvation in Scripture. And you can't be a good Christian if you don't do these things that I do, and you don't do those things that I don't approve of, and you don't dress the way that I approve of, and all of these various things. So subtle and so sneaky. Most of the world would have watched that bat being carried, and they wouldn't even know. Paul wants them to know. He wants them to see every aspect of this and care because he loves them. So this morning, we're going to lay this out. This is what, I'm just going to lay this out. I'm hoping, I'm trusting that you have come for this reason because you want to live in confidence and you want to grow in intimacy with the Father. All right? So it's going to come up on the screen. How can I live in confidence and experience growing intimacy with the Father, with God? I believe that's probably why you're here this morning. You want to grow in confidence and you want to know God better. You want to grow in intimacy with God. There are some songs I've had people say, you know, that song that was sung by that singer, it sounded like it was a love song. And I, I just don't approve of that. That's because they don't understand the aspect of a songwriter that is writing about the intimacy and the fellowship that they have with God in Christ. And they're like the woman washing Jesus' feet with her tears and drying his feet with her hair. And there's the Pharisee over there. This is inappropriate. This isn't the kind of song that we should be singing. You know what I'm saying? Maybe because they haven't been forgiven to the same degree that that woman was forgiven or that songwriter was understanding what God has done in loving us, in sending Christ. Well, if we're going to live in confidence, if we're going to experience growing intimacy with God, then number one, we have to remember, I'm going to make these personal this morning. I need to remember my former powerless condition. And to stress this point, Paul uses a common legal analogy, a situation they were very familiar with to make a spiritual truth, a spiritual application. Can you imagine this? I haven't seen yet the movie uh, with Harriet Tubman that re telling her story. Can you imagine in any city in America pulling up with a bus and the the marquee on it, 
slavery. Everybody on. Who's going to, in their right mind, get on that bus? Prison. Everybody on. Doors open. Who's going to get on that bus? No way. What Harriet Tubman went through? I'm looking forward to seeing that movie. To her story of delivering those out of slavery. Would she be in favor of, sure, get back on the bus? No way. Paul is saying, they're inviting you back into slavery. And you're putting a foot on there? You're going up the steps? You're listening to them, why? Why would you do this? Chapter 4, verse 1, I mean that the heir, as long as he's a child. Now, there's the word napios, all right? It's, a, it's an infant. They're not, they're not talking yet. They're dependent on mom and dad for everything. This child is no different from a slave, though he's the owner of everything. What is he saying? Here's these two babies. They're born in the household. One is the firstborn heir of the household master, the owner. The other is the a child of a slave lady in the house. Those two babies don't know the difference. All they know is hungry, you know, and sounds and noises and smells and sleep. They're the same. One is the heir of everything. One is a slave born into the household. And Paul is saying, when it all begins, they start out, they're in the same routines. They're in the same status. Though this, is, this child is the owner of everything, but verse two, is he is under guardians. Paul uses a different word here. Uh, before the pedagogy, he was talking about last week, that person that was responsible for that master's son. And now he uses two other words and he talks about uh, the guardian and manager. One is responsible for his person. The other is responsible for his property until a date set by the father. This baby growing up in the house becomes a child and is growing. They can't spend any Anything. They can't do anything without permission. They can't go anywhere. In all reality, this child is a slave of a slave. This is the analogy that Paul is using here to make a spiritual point. He's talking about so that they understand what is it to come of age? What is it to go from being told everything I can do, everything I cannot do, until I'm the one saying, you go here, you go there. I acquire you. I buy this land. I, why would you go back to this standing? So he's using an analogy that they would have understand to make a spiritual point. Now in Jewish culture, maybe some of you have been to a bar mitzvah, about 12 years old. The boy is recognized now. He is coming of age and he's a young man and bar mitzvah. And we celebrate this in the Greek culture. A minor child would become, uh, he would become an adult about the age of 18 during a festival at Apaturia. Then they would celebrate this Greek child is now uh, no longer, he's responsible to the state. He's a citizen. I remember when I turned 18, they gave me a book on being 18. And in that book, I had to register for the draft. It's like, I went from, you know, uh, you know, be available, here's my name. I went from being just a kid and, you know, mowing yards to sign your name. And if we go to war, they're going to call you. They're going to call you up. Mm. We'll see what the next few years handle. I don't know if they could have taken me with as bad of eyes as I have, and I don't know. But I remember that book. In the Roman culture, it was a little different. It wasn't necessarily devoted to a child's age. Not so sure that it should be in our culture either. Oh, I'm 18. I'm 21. Woo! Have you looked at a college campus lately? 
Oh, they're so mature. Has anybody said that lately of any major campus? Look at the maturity here. No, I don't think so. Bunch of guys out in the stadiums cheering for their teams with no clothes on and minus 10 degree weather. Like maturity, that's what comes to mind right there. Maturity, they're painted all up. In Roman culture, when the father affirmed his son, when he looked at his son and said, now you're ready, that's when he was entrusted with the household. That's when he would come of age. So this is the analogy that fits with what Paul is saying. The father, the father's relationship to the son. In verse three, he says, in the same way we, now here Paul is connecting himself with the Galatians. He's a Jew. He was brought up in Judaism, but he's connecting himself with the Galatians. They're Gentiles. And so he pulls them in together. He's, he's devoted to unifying the church. In the same way, we also, when we were children, and he's using that word, infants, when we were immature, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. That was where we started out. So he makes an application here. And this is the application of coming to age spiritually. There was a time when we were children. Had to be told everything to do. We needed the law. We were kept un, under the guardian. We had no rights. We had no freedom. And we had no desire to honor and glorify God. Everything was self-centered. That's a child, right? Me first. Mine. Now. I do it myself. Right? Some of you are raising that kid. Right? Cannot tell them what to do. They do their own thing. Like children, we had to be told everything to do, everything not to do. You ever been responsible for watching children? Oh, it, it's fun, right? You got to tell them everything. Everything. Did you brush your teeth? Let me see your teeth. No, you have fur on your teeth. Go try again. <laughs> when was the last time? I don't know where my toothbrush is. Uh, that was like a month ago. It's been gone for how long? You might want to mention this. I'm a bus driver few other bus drivers in our church. Stay seated in your, you know, stay seated when the bus is moving. You have to say that over and over. It's like, I said it at the beginning of the year. It's like every day, certain kids, like multiple times, just play, press the recording. Say, you know, sit down, sit down, please. Sit down, seat to the seat, back to the back. Oh, there's all kinds of things that have to be told. Clean your room. Turn the lights off. Turn the exhaust fan off lest it take all the heat out of our house because it's an old exhaust fan and it works. Turn, uh, yeah, close the door. But I let the dog out. Yeah, it's 10 degrees outside. Close the door. <sighs> Wash your hands. Some of your households, put the toilet seat down. Don't lick the bus windows. That's a good one. Oh, yeah. You've seen it all in the mirrors. Don't pick your nose. We'll leave that one there. Don't hit other children. Stay seated when the bus is moving. Remember your manners. Say please and thank you. Do all of your homework. Still, stay seated when the bus is moving, right? <laughs> Don't say bad words. It was a funny situation that happened a day this week. It was a kindergartner. I like this little guy. He's trouble. It's kind of like you guys were handling some, some little rambunctiousness on the front row. I saw you trying to work with the kids next to you. Like, this little guy is a kindergartner and a first grader. 
And a first grader said, I'm going to tell Mr. Wise if you don't stay sitting down. And a kindergartner said, oh, you said a bad word. And, a, and the first grader, I did not say a bad word. How can Mr. Wise be a bad word? That's his name. You said a bad word. That is not a bad, that is not a bad word. That is his name. I can't, you said a bad word, kindergartner to the first grader. That is not a bad word. How can that be a bad word? That is, Mr. Wise, what is your name? Uh, Mr. Wise, see, how can that be a bad word? He just didn't even want to deal with having to be sitting down. He just changed the whole conversation. I was like, and then there was a, a kindergartner sitting right there, and she, she was just sitting there listening to the whole thing going on. And I looked over at her. She looked at me, and she was just mesmerized by all that was happening behind her. Like, this is, this is crazy. This is amazing. We're kids. We're all under the bar of God's law, and it doesn't matter if you were brought up in Judaism or if you were brought up in a, without God or worshiping false gods. We're all, by our own conscience, convicted and condemned. We don't even keep our own standards. We don't keep our own New Year's commit resolutions and commitments, let alone God's. We're all condemned. We're all told, we have to be told, go here, go there. This is right. This is polite. Sit in your row. Don't make noise. Don't move. All these things, that this is children. And this is what Paul unites himself, that we, Jews, Gentiles, that we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. And the word that he uses is like the ABCs. You line them all up. You remember A, B, C, D, E. You want to mess with a kid? Just throw a wrong letter in there. A, B, F, J, C, D. What? That was wrong. Like you, you mess with a kid and you can, what? What'd I do? It's supposed to be A, B, C, D, E, F, G. That's what I said. A, B, Z, D. No, that's the wrong thing. You just, and this is a child. This is immature. Everything has to be in order. That's the life of a legalist. And who sets all of that? They do. Their founder of their religion. You have to do these things and not do those things. And we drink these things. We don't drink those things. We eat these things. We don't eat those. Here's the list. And whatever list you come up with, it crushes us and it doesn't do one thing about forgiving a sin. So Paul is saying, why are you going with them? Why are you going to get back on that bus? He's writing to a Gentile audience. He unites himself with them. He's not looking down his nose at them. Oh, you, you Gentiles, we had the good religion. And you were out there doing horrible, awful things. He's saying we were all powerless to redeem ourselves. We were all lost without hope. We needed a savior. So we have to remember. We have to remember our, pow our powerless condition. Maybe for you this morning, you have to recognize your powerless condition. Maybe out of fear, you think, God, is, I'm afraid of God, so if I do these things, he won't be mad at me. Or I'm going to try to do these things and I'll gain favor with him. You just have to recognize, I have no power to redeem myself. That brings us to number two. If I'm going to grow in confidence, if I'm going to experience a growing intimacy with the Father, that I need to receive the Father's gracious provision. He gave his son. But I have to receive this gift. It's not enough just to know about this gift. It must be received. But God. That's the greatest message. Here I was powerless. 
I couldn't save myself, but God, it's a timeout. Have you heard the good news? Yes, you were lost. Yes, you were on your way to hell. Yes, you, you were hopeless to redeem yourself. You had nothing that you could buy back, one sin. But God, God did something. And he didn't throw the burden on you of here's what you have to do. He did it. He gave his son. Verse four, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. The father has given us his son. This is the message of Christmas. Without this, you have no message. You have a holiday. You have a reason for people to give gifts and receive gifts, but you miss the whole point of it. It's like trying to explain a bat without the ball diamond and anything else that goes with it. What's the point? Jesus came at the right time. This is what Paul is careful. He says, this gift was given at the right time when the fullness of time had come. Judaism had prepared the world with a message. Messiah is coming. Messiah is coming. We need a redeemer. Messiah is coming. Then Greek, uh, the Greek culture conquered the world and Greece was mighty and they gave the language a common language, like English is the common language today. When Jesus was born, the common language was Greek. So this message, a redeemer is coming, and it would end up being the redeemer has come, could be communicated through this common language, Greek, everywhere. And then at the right time, the fullness of time, Rome had conquered the world, and there was peace. So when Jesus rose from the dead, and he was alive, and he was seen by witnesses, he ascended, then the Spirit came and dwelt the apostles. And when persecution happened and they spread, they had a common language, a common message, and a peace. And at like no other time in history, the message of the gospel could be carried out in God's good grace could be carried to massive amount of people as they were prepared, they were waiting, they could understand, and the message could get there because there was freedom. It was at the right time. It was the right gift. God gave his son. It was given in the right way. He was born of woman. This is the incarnation. This is the virgin birth. This is what Christmas is all about, that Jesus didn't have a human father, that God in the spirit overshadowed Mary. And about the age of probably 12, 13, 14 years old, she becomes the one bearing Messiah. I mean, just think about that. Carrying the Christ child? This is no human story. This is a divine story. The fullness of time, the right time, the right gift, the right way. And the right conditions. He was born under the law. He was fully God. He was fully man. He was born as a Jew. And he was the first and he was the last to fully keep the law. And in Matthew 5, 17, Jesus says, I didn't come to destroy the law. I came to fulfill the law. I came to show you this is what it looks like to keep the law because none of you have ever seen it. Moses didn't do it. David didn't do it. Abraham sure didn't do it. No one did this. This is what it looks like to be righteous and clean before God, to keep the law. Jesus upheld the law. It was given for the right reasons, this gift of the Father, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive the adoption as sons. There's really two words here. I would encourage you to underline them in your Bible. That is the word redemption and the word adoption, to redeem. 
it's hard for us to understand what it is to redeem because we're removed from that. And I understand that there is a culture and there is an underworld that goes on in our world right now today, sexual, the, the sex trafficking. And it's a problem. But it's, it's still hidden. It's still kept back. It's still not okay. In this culture, it was everywhere Corners, street corners, there are human beings standing there with no clothes on, on an auction block, waiting on someone to buy them. And they would buy them for some use, labor or worse. It's hard for us to picture ourselves with all the good we've done and all the things and all the, I've done this and I haven't done that. I've never killed anybody. It's hard for us to picture ourselves in a powerless condition, standing on a slave auction block, which is where we were owned by Satan. And to hear the voice of Jesus, I'll purchase him. I'll take her. Oh, this is expensive. This is going to cost you your life. I'll give my life because I want him, because I want her. I'll pay the price to be redeemed, to be bought back. And what's, what hope would a slave ever have to be a son? See, it's one thing to be redeemed, and you have to understand the differences between justified and being adopted. To be justified is, you know what? Your sentence is, 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 is removed from you. That punishment that was coming for you is placed on Christ. You're, you're free to go. Uh, paid in full. But then to hear the words, oh, but hey, hang on a second. And the judge says, it's not just good enough that I let you go out the courtroom free. I'm actually going to take you, an orphan, and I'm going to put you in my family, and I'm going to put you in my will, and I'm going to give you my name, and I'm going to make you a child of mine at my expense. That's what it is to be adopted. That's what God has done for us in Christ. I was reading... And David Platt, he shared in, in this book on Galatians, he shared they adopted a son from Kazakhstan. And kids are at this age and they ask, why, 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 why? You know, it's, it's hey, the sun is shining, why? You know, it just, it, why about everything? And he asked this question uh, one day, David Platt said, I told my son I loved him and he asked, why? I said, because you're my son. And of course he asked, Why? How do you answer that? Out of all the children in the world, why is he my son? I started thinking about all the factors that had come together from the timing to the qualifications to the ups and the downs and the days my wife and I wondered if we could do this. I felt the tears well up, though my son didn't even know what was going on. Probably sorry he asked why. I looked at this precious little boy and I said, because we wanted you, buddy. And we came to get you. That's why. You're my son. Because we wanted you. That's why you're my son. See, there's so many things that we know, but we don't really understand them. 
of what God has done for us in Christ, that he would adopt us, that he would make us a joint heir with Christ. The Father has not only given us his son, but he's also given us his spirit. We've been set free. We've been filled. He wants to be with us. He goes with you. If you are a child of God, he goes with you through every conversation. He goes with you through every doubt. He goes with you through every struggle. He goes with you when other people go home and they go away and you go where you go and you think what you think and you you forget and I forget. The trip of Father saying, I want to be with you. And if you know Jesus, he's with you. He lives in you by his spirit. The spirit that raised Christ from the dead. Verse six says, and because you are sons, okay, this comes with, this comes with purpose. There's consequences. There's something that happens when you're made a son. God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. God gives his Holy Spirit to every Christian. Every Christian. says, you're my son, you're my child, you're my daughter. And you say, is this offensive that he's not using sons and daughters and he's only using sons? In the first century, daughters couldn't inherit anything. We're hearing it wrongly. In the first century, there were women saying, excuse me, did you just say we? Because all we know is the firstborn son inherits everything. We got nothing unless we marry into, we get married into a good family. We got nothing. Did you just say that God is calling me an elevated status of son? Christianity elevated women. We have all access. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There's a way. We have all access. We have an irrevocable identity. Go with me back to Romans. Romans chapter 8, and then we're going to look at a passage in John. Romans chapter 8, verses 12 through 17. This uh, Romans 8 is such a monumental chapter. But I just want to look at these verses, 12 to 17. And Paul's writing on the same theme. He, he says it a little bit different of a way to the church at Rome. And he says, so then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry. And this is a cry, and and it's a loud cry. Abba, Father. It's an Aramaic term that Paul uses here. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Jesus suffered. Paul said, I want to know Christ and the fellowship of his sufferings. I want to know him and his power. He will never take away his spirit from us. 
It's irrevocable. This standing made a, made a son of God. And this is Scott McKnight. He says it this way. He says, legalists are led by the law. He said, hedonists are led by their desires. Materialists are led by their possessions. Oh, look what I have. Look at this. Look at that. But Christians, sons of God, are led by the Spirit. It's a whole different way of living. It's unimaginable love. Go to John 17. Say, I I hear you, Pastor, but I'm not quite sure I believe you. You don't really know everything about me. I don't know. I, I mean, I know it, but I'm not sure I understand how much God loves me. And and when we say grace and we say love, we are not saying that it doesn't matter what you do and righteousness doesn't matter. There's just grace for everybody. You can live in sin and you can do whatever you want. That's not true because when a son is taken and recognized by a father and he says, you're my son and I want everybody to know you're my son. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. The father said of Jesus at the baptism there with John. And when a Roman father would say, everybody, this is my son. He is my, all my inheritance is going to him. This is my boy and I'm giving him my name and I'm giving him all authority. Now the weight rests on the son. I'm representing my father. I love my father. I want to honor my father. He's recognized in me maturity. And so will I be perfect? No, but I want to honor my father. Not because he has to. And it wasn't held out like if you, oh, I'm going to send you back. Now you're my son and everything goes into your care. Now it's love. It's not law. Now love is the factor. And in John 17, look at verse 20. Jesus is praying. He says, I do not ask for these. And he's talking about his disciples, those that were there with him. He says, I'm not asking for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us. That's you. That's me. If you've believed or if you may believe today, he's praying for you. Verse 21, that they may all be one. What does Jesus desire of his church? Unity. To be one. To be like-minded. Because we represent just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. This is a powerful witness when a church is unified. Verse 22, the glory that you have given me I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me. Now here's this, catch this, don't miss this. You sent me and loved who? Them. You sent me, Jesus said, and you have loved them even as you have loved me. Do you hear what Jesus said about you? That the father loves his children equal to his love for Christ. And Jesus wasn't, this isn't fair. He was praying for us knowing You love me, and that isn't just to be hoarded by me. It's to be given away for my people to get it. They're loved by God. And what do they do with this love? Hoard it? Oh, no. Give it away. Forgive it away. 
This is what Jesus prayed for. This is what we're given in his son and in his spirit. It's something otherworldly. It's not earthy. It's not you scratch my back, I scratch yours. It is you offended me and I will forgive you. And we'll go to the cross. This is what Paul is talking about. So we need to realize the status of my new exalted position. That's our third. If I'm going to grow in my confidence, if I'm going to grow in intimacy with God, then I have to realize this. How does this happen? God working in me the truth, the reality. Do you understand where you were, what I've given in Christ and in the Spirit, and now where you are? He's made a way. So you are no longer a slave but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Who gets all the glory for this? God. God did this. Paul gets personal here. He stops saying we. No third person, us. He's saying you. Are you a child of God? Have you received the gift? Your parents can't do this for you. Your spouse cannot do this for you. This is personal, and Paul gets personal here. He's saying, I'm talking to you. Have you received this gift? Do you have this new exalted position in Christ, or are you still in need of being redeemed and adopted? There's grace for you. There's Jesus for you. But you must receive and you must stop saying it's a 50-50, I'll try harder, and he did these things. It is, I'm a sinner, I need a savior. Have mercy on me. I plead the blood to be clothed in Christ. What's your status this morning? Are you a slave or are you a son? And you know there's a temptation even as a son, a child of God, to still go back to what's familiar, to the, what, the way you were brought up and those familiar things. And I went through these motions and I went through that. And it's in all of our backgrounds. I was raised a Baptist with a capital B. And I could so easily go back to those things that are, they're not pleasing to the Lord. But they come naturally. Maybe you have those in your background and these are the things that I was used to and this is what we did and this is what church looked like and this is what worship looked like. But I was missing adoption. And where else was this used? And I asked the question a little bit ago, why did Paul use that Aramaic phrase, Abba, Father? Because Jesus did. In the garden, Jesus cried out. And on the lips of a slave, they couldn't say that in the household. That could never be uttered from their lips that they would refer to the master of the household. Abba, father, no way. That's only for a son. And Jesus cries out in the garden, Abba, father, so that we can cry out. And he was turned away from by the father so that you and I will never be turned away from. He was forsaken for you and I to never be forsaken. 
this is how good this message is. Are you a slave or are you a son? I will say this and it'll come on the screen. We'll do for love what we'll never do for law. The law can tone down some behavior and can get some things straightened out and make some kids obey long enough till you get them back to who is ever supposed to watch them or whatever. But when you do something because of love, when a kid picks up a bat because they love the game and they practice for hours, they'll never do that if they're just told you need to practice 30 minutes a day and they have no desire to ever play. You and I will give, and you and I will serve, and you and I will forgive, and we will grow in grace when we're motivated by love in ways that the law can never touch. Legalism. Keeping my own standards or somebody else's. Are you a slave? Or are you a son? I'm going to ask the worship team to come and we're going to sing. And there's a line in this song that says, and it's meant to be a building line, that I am a child of God. And when you think about I am a child of God and when you think about the reality of what God has done for us, if you cry out and you have a father, where would you go that you would be ashamed of? My father in heaven. We can stand before anyone and we don't fear the rejection of anyone because I've been accepted by God. And we can go anywhere and say, do you know who my father is? Not one of us have a a wonderful, amazing, perfect, sinless father. And those of us who are here are fathers, we sure can't say that. Me and Jesus, yeah, we're right there. We're awesome. No, made plenty of errors. Here's what we do have, beloved. We have a perfect faithful, good father in heaven that will never leave us, never forsake us, gave us his son. And he says, come on, come to me. And I will give you access. And I'll give you redemption. I'll give you adoption. And you can take on your lips because I'm giving it to you. Abba, father, I am a child of God. So what would we fear? What someone thinks of you? When you're loved by God, you are loved. You are loved. You are loved. Let's stand together. Father, thank you for what you have done in Christ. Thank you for the gift you have given to redeem us. And as we sing and we respond in worship, Lord, Hear the songs, hear the praises of thanksgiving from our lips. And then, Lord, as we come to the table, oh, you have been so good to us. We're so thankful. Thank you for your love and thank you for the cross. In Jesus' name, amen.